0: The General Planning Podcast takes you backstage and explores the world of planning and strategy development. We will get you into the minds of successful leaders and executives in our government and industry and hear firsthand how they made some of America's most historic decisions. I'm your host, Mark Lavin, the Director of Strategy, Plans, and Policy at Army North. And I'm here with Seth Barham, the Public Affairs Operations Chief. Join us as we learn about planning and strategy from our nation's best. All right. Welcome back to the podcast. With me, as always, is Seth Barham, ready to go. We have our Commander Lieutenant General John Evans back in the booth today.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Mark. It's good to be here.
0: This episode, we are talking planning and strategy development in the forming and storming phase of group dynamics. What do planners and leaders need to understand to be successful when pulling a diverse group or team together to solve a complex problem, which most commonly are occurring in early stages of crisis? So today we're going to talk about how to recognize and overcome common group dynamics to eventually gain a unity of effort. We have a great episode lined up with Mr. David Warrington as our guest. David is a regional administrator for Region 2. FEMA regional administrators are the primary integrator with local and state governments for emergency response, and they have extensive experience integrating solutions with local first responders, law enforcement, private industry, and even the military at a point in time when our citizens are having probably one of their worst days. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you to be here. Nice to be here. Before we jump in, I would like to give a quick overview of your bio. As mentioned, David was appointed the Regional Administrator of Region FEMA 2 in January of 2022. He directs all aspects of federal emergency management for the states of New Jersey and New York, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, the Territory of the United States Virgin Islands, and the Native American tribal nations in the region. With almost 20 years of experience in the public sector, he was a Senior Manager of Strategic Preparedness for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, responsible for developing an all-hazards risk mitigation program to assess complex threats and lead the evaluation of mitigation strategies. Throughout his career, Mr. Warrington has served in a leadership capacity for all command positions within the Port Authority's incident command structure, including responses to Hurricane Sandy and Irene, U.S. Airways Flight 1549, the crash into the Hudson River, and numerous named winter storms. So thanks again, Dave, for being on. Sir, so again, welcome to the podcast. And I guess we'll we'll start off with a couple of questions about how you got to where you're at and what do you see in terms of group dynamics at the, at the storming phase of, of the crisis?
2: Sure. Thank you again for having me. What I think is really important, so I have a 20-year career in emergency management. I started my career after 9-11. I was in college. I was a freshman in college. Two weeks into my college career when 9-11 happened. And I remember going to one of the first classes when classes resumed and the professor basically stood up and he said, you want to do criminal justice, the entire field of criminal justice and counterterrorism and anti-terrorism in the next 20 years is going to blow up and there's going to be a tremendous amount of opportunity. Sure. And I thought I first wanted to be a police officer, right, something in law enforcement, maybe the FBI later on in life. But I had an opportunity to work in emergency management and really help people, right? And communities. And something resonated with me, but this is what I want to do. So I started at the lowest of low levels in emergency management, worked my way up the ladder in the public sector, been through a multitude of different kinds of hazards and events that impact public infrastructure, individuals uh, in New York City, a major metropolitan area. That's the economic engine of the country. Absolutely. And then I was fortunate to get an opportunity to work with FEMA and run region two, and oversee not just the sort of individual islands that the Port Authority represents in New York and New Jersey. So just for background, the Port Authority manages all of the airports, the ports, a rail system, all the bridges, all the tunnels, and the World Trade Center complex. But those are individual pockets and islands, and taking the opportunity to run a region and oversee the emergency management and lead that endeavor with all of the different complex threats and hazards that Region 2 faces, was daunting when I first stepped through the door. It was a much larger scale. But I will tell you, the people that work in Region 2, all of the partners that we have at the federal level, and the integration with our state and local partners has been phenomenal over my two-year tenure. And I think we learned a lot of lessons throughout, not just my two years in FEMA, but all of the people I work with Having gone through whether it's Hurricane Sandy in Region 2 or Hurricanes Irma and Maria in Puerto Rico and USVI, positioning our partners at the state and local level and also individuals, right, with preparedness and educating people about knowing their risks, developing an individual family plan, working with our federal partners to understand those risks and understand the timing is so important right for the known events that are coming like hurricanes sure preemptively yeah. planning right and getting down range before the storm hits so we're ready to rock and roll as soon as the storm passes
1: can, can i pull that thread sure. for a minute it's, it's interesting you mentioned this i think you and for our listeners out there the construct that may not be familiar with the 10 regions that fema handles we break the united States up into 10 areas and and we put administrators in charge of those areas, and some of them are smaller with regards to the number of states, but the, the scale of the responsibilities is huge. You and and Region Ten, Bob Fenton, have a unique responsibility because you've got non-contiguous regions, right? You've got you've got New York and New Jersey, but right. you've also got responsibility for what we call Viper, uh, the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico. Can you talk a little bit about how that challenges you? Because Again, you were talking sure. about weather events, right? The weather in the Northeast Coast is not what we're getting in the Leeward Islands. So, how do you manage that, and how do you plan against those particular challenges when you've got uh, part of your region a thousand miles away?
2: Yep, yeah, no, it's a great question. It's tremendously difficult. So, we're about sixteen hundred miles between New York, New Jersey, and Vi- and Viper. And I will say, from a capability standpoint, New York City has more cops and firemen and, sure, right, than, sure. they, than they know what to do with. They're resource rich. Same thing with New Jersey, right? State, State Police in New Jersey run their OEM. They are phenomenal. They are a paramilitary organization and they are locked in. Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands have been doing a tremendous job over the last six years since Hurricane Irma and Maria to build capacity and capability. But on a relative scale, there is a long way to go and we're committed to helping them get there. But what's difficult about Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands is there's a geographic separation, right? They're islands. Sure. So to get anything there from a planning perspective, and a lot needs to be brought to bear to fight the fight. Uh, It all has to be shipped or it all has to be flown in. Right. Right. And especially uh, prior to landfall of, say, a hurricane, there's competing interest, right? Especially in the private sector of aircraft and vessels that are inbound, right? Usually the Coast Guard wants to clear the port beforehand so it it does create challenges but it also it's something that we are aware of right and we have planning factors that we utilize to ensure that the right resources get there ahead of time the other aspect too is since 2017 both vi and puerto rico from a critical infrastructure standpoint their infrastructure on the power side, on the water side, health and hospitals suffered tremendously, right. almost complete collapse. In fact, it was a complete collapse of their electric grid in right. Puerto Rico. Right? Some folks had over 11 months without power. Amazing. So knowing that, we've done a tremendous volume of work to help them rebuild their infrastructure, stabilize their electric grid, make, more, make their water systems more resilient, installing generators on hospitals through the public assistance program, hazard mitigation programs but they're not there yet. They're not a fully resilient infrastructure sets right across all different sectors. So we always have that notion of vulnerability out there that with a certain given storm or a certain given event, we could be resetting back, right? We've taken a couple steps forward, we could be uh, set back. So it's really important for us as a planning factor to know those vulnerabilities, where they lie. Like We rely heavily on the 249th power team, right? To come in and, and do power assessments so that we're not, throwing generators all over the place and then having to spend hours or days figuring out do we have the right connections, right? So we do a lot of preemptive planning on sending teams out there, understanding what the infrastructure looks like, what all the connections are, the the size of the generators that have to go in. We update that every single year as infrastructure changes just to position ourselves to be as forward-leaning as possible to minimize downtime
1: of that infrastructure. Oh, that's great. Thanks Thanks for the insights on that. I think it's when Bob deals with the same thing with Hawaii, in Alaska. So it's it is a much different, I think, uh, endeavor for you guys.
0: Yeah, and sir, Roger. So you're talking about some really complex planning there. What are the, some of the underlying assumptions that you guys make in terms of is this going to be a resilient approach for this coming season or this coming this coming set of crises? So
2: for pre-deployment packages, we have two that we really operate on, right? And we flex those a little bit here and there. But for the most part, for hurricane planning specifically down in the Caribbean, we base our planning off of essentially a Cat 1 hurricane or less or a Cat 2 and higher, right? And a Cat 1 and less is our light package, we call it. And it's about 50 or 60 personnel, I want to say. Our heavy package is we're sending the cavalry, right? Right. Everyone's going required very expensive but also a lot of resources that we think we're going to need right sure. and we always are on the side of we're going to send more just in case and we can always demob folks in advance but that planning has worked out well for us i will tell you this year alone for both puerto rico and vi we've deployed our light package five times
1: yeah i remember and i know the challenge we run into the same thing right our dc our defense coordinating elements are responsive to our regional administrators with regards to response we follow your lead, but I know the challenge, particularly in Viper, is when's the right time to go right? Do we need to be there before the storm? Yep. Is, or do we need to lay out because we're going to have such an event yep. that we don't want to be bogged down, we don't want to be there with no capability? And drawing off of those lifelines that the people need yep. will just exacerbate their challenges. Can you talk through how you guys war game that?
2: Sure. So I'll, I'll share an interesting sort of inside baseball, if I may a lot of decision-making comes around the bean counters, right? The people that are responsible, fiscal responsibility, right? And we all want to be fiscally responsible, but there's definitely a divide between the operators, right? And the people that count the beans. So one of the paradigms that that FEMA has historically operated under, right, is with a hurricane, it really needs to be likely and imminent, right? That a hurricane is going to make landfall and, and cause direct impact. And... What we've learned, I, I think primarily through climate change, has been a big driving factor of it. As good as the forecasting is through the National Weather Service and the National Hurricane Center, right, and they are 10-pound brains that are trying to calculate all this stuff, right, through, through advanced modeling, the European model, and this one and that one, none of it is with 100% confidence. And we experienced that with Hurricane Fiona. And I will tell you, there was a lot of conversations about do we really need to deploy a light package in support of hurricane Fiona, which hit last year, right? September of 2022. And I, there was a lot of back and forth about, should we send them? It's not really likely and imminent. The track looks like it's not going to hit. Why are we going to spend this spend resources and money to go down there? And ultimately we got to a point where we said there's a possibility. So we're going to send the light package. Sure. And thank God we did because they ended up with about 30 inches of rain and you know, 50 60 70 mile an hour winds and it would ended up being a presidentially declared disaster and power outages for the better part of 11 to 14 days for a vast majority of the island and if we were not there in advance that those systemic problems
1: would have exacerbated tenfold yeah that's great and if i can mark i got i've got one more that i'd like to kick today because before we came on air we were talking a little bit about the kind of the evolution of fema mm-hmm. and And even in my two and a half years here, I've seen just this really incredible capability as we look back at some of the significant events that FEMA's had to help out with from Katrina forward, right? Uh, How much the agency has matured and how much the thought process and planning has matured. And you made a statement, I won't put words in your mouth, but you said, hey, we can do hurricanes in our sleep now. We understand that we've got a good template, we've got a good model. It's the other things that are out there that are going to require response to concern yeah. you. Can you talk about that a little bit and sure. how that inf- affects us all here in our, our homeland? Sure.
2: So we've done,
1: we've as you alluded to, as I, I had mentioned before, we've done a, a
2: ton of planning uh, related to hurricanes. Quite frankly, though, the planning related to hurricanes is not about the hurricane itself. It's about the cascading consequences, right, and getting power back and, and working on the lifelines, as FEMA calls them, right, power, water, transportation, security comms, eight of them where i what's concerning for me is that because of the likelihood and probability of hurricanes it's the scenario du jour that we all should be planning for because we know it's coming it's not a matter of if but when and with climate change we see an increased severity however there's a lot of other hazards out there that we give some attention to but quite frankly you can't plan for everything all at once and all in you need to prioritize, which I think is why we really prioritize the hurricanes. But across the country, whether it's human-caused hazards or nation-state threats, could be chem, bio, rad from nine eleven on, that dynamic can change month to month or year to year in right, terms of threats right. that we face. Sure. But I do think the notion of all hazards planning, which is really what FEMA engages in, right, scenario agnostic, helps us... Be prepared as much as we can. However, there are those one-offs, whether it's a radiological incident or a a nuclear facility, like Three Mile Island, something like that, right? Being as postured as possible. And so in order to lean forward on that, we do try and stress test the system of our employees and our other federal agencies and our partners that we work with at the state and local level to work through. Just last year, we did a, a nuclear Uh, reactor scenario right where there was some leakage of of radiological materials and how would we address that and there's a whole laundry list of conversations that we literally had to stop the exercise and say like all right explain the price anderson act of congress right and 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 how does that interact with (laughs) the stafford act right and whose authorities right and conversations with my dce about like how are you guys involved in this and Is it under our mission assignment or do you have your own authorities? But it really did expose gaps, knowledge gaps, right? But it allowed us to tackle those. Do I think we're 100% there? Absolutely not, right? We need to continually keep at it and learn more and plan more and build those planning factors into our plans and our assumptions, but I think we continually iteratively get better
1: Yeah, every single day that we do that stuff. You said, you mentioned the Stafford Act. So I was wondering for our listeners, cause most of them are probably not familiar mm-hmm. and, and you talked about bean counters, right? So it's all about who's got a, who's got to foot the bill. Can you talk a little bit about what the Stafford Act directs for the federal government mm-hmm. and how that operates?
2: Sure. So mm-hmm. FEMA's, Primary authorities rest with the Stafford Act, which is essentially there's really three different kinds of presidential declarations or declarations where FEMA can engage. One is a major disaster declaration on behalf of the president. State basically either the president can, in terms of imminent need, say, that's it, I'm declaring FEMA go. There's also, say, for a large storm or winter event. If there's a certain financial threshold that the states exceed in public assistance or individual assistance dollars, they can request a major disaster declaration from the president. And upon what comes to me, I review it. I make my recommendation to the president and the White House, and they ultimately approve it or deny it based on those. That's a mechanism through a major disaster declaration to open up a litany of resources to support states and locals, and then long-term funding for recovery and hazard mitigation so on and so forth. The, last, the second one is an emergency declaration, which is essentially, look, they just need support on the front end, right? It's limited categories of support. It's usually direct federal assistance, and it's things like emergency debris removal. The last one, which we very rarely use in Region 2, some of my counterparts across the country have seen an exponential increase in, this, in the usage of this, and that is FMAGs, the Fire Management Assistance Grants, in the last couple of years. I just heard the other day State of Louisiana has not put in for an FMAG in 15, 20 years. They had seven this year. Right, because of the fires. Because of the fires, right? So it's all wrapped up around the Stafford Act. That's what really gives us our authorities. And then once the declaration happens, we have access to what's called the Disaster Relief Fund. It's a congressionally appropriated uh, pot of money uh, that we draw down on. And that's how we fund our own staff. That's how we fund OFAs on mission assignments. And it's how we fund the long-term recovery of our states and our territories. And
1: our Great. Thanks for walking us through. Sure. I think that's useful for people that are listening out there.
0: So speaking of our listeners, some, one of the reasons why we like to have outside agencies come on and it's on the podcast is help us see ourselves. What's your experience been like in working with military planners? What are some of the interesting nuances or idiosyncrasies that you've seen at particularly time of crisis?
2: So I will tell you in region two, and I can only speak to region two, between myself and my staff and the DCE and their staff, the relationship has been phenomenal in my two years. And I've actually had a couple change-outs of DCEs, and doesn't matter. You change the leadership, right, the, the staff right level, and new vision with new leadership, doesn't matter. We are locked in, right? And they, I think from the military planner side, they appreciate the facts of the complexities that we talked about, the geographic separation sure, of yeah. Region 2, and understanding to advocate or the necessity of DOD resources, right? There's a lot of stuff that the federal family can bring to the table, right? right? Across the federal government. However, right, the green suits sometimes are the only ones that could do it, right? And the only ones that could do it in at large scale, right? And I think as we walk, as we develop that relationship with our, our DCE, right, and across DOD assets and resources as we do planning and exercises, that relationship albeit we all speak a different language
1: i will yeah, say yes right we, yes we do yes we do
2: <laughs> building that relationship over time amongst small cadres of staff that continually work together yep. it bridges that language gap and we're all pointing in the same direction
1: yeah I, I really appreciate uh, your term the federal family i think it really for, for again for our listeners when, when we start talking about things particularly here in the homeland uh, it really is about this whole of government approach to what we do, because uh, as we've been talking about at our conference this week, yep. DOD, and the big elephant in the room, we have very few authorities to do things in the homeland. We rely on our federal partners to lead the charge, and we we apply ourselves in a supporting role. So federal family, I like that.
0: So let me change the, uh, I guess, the flavor a little bit, maybe get a little esoteric. You, know, you talked about how you came in on the ground floor for public service. As you came through that process, were there one was there a moment or a time or experience that you had where you were either like, A, I'm out of here, or two, this is my calling, this is my vocation, and maybe you can you know, share a little bit about that.
2: That's a great question. I loved my career in the Port Authority. I was there 17 years. While I loved the mission and I loved what I did, the people were just phenomenal. I never had that moment of this is too much or... This is BS and I don't want to do this anymore. I love showing up to work every day. And I will tell you, it was difficult for me to leave an organization after 17 years. I can imagine, yeah. To jump into something with much more responsibility and much larger scale. But while I was at the Port Authority, I'll tell you a story, a quick story. Sure. So during uh, Hurricane (laughs) Irma and Maria, uh, Puerto Rico was decimated, right? On top of the federal support, there's also something called EMAC, right, Emergency Management Assistance Compact, where state-to-state state can request resources. So Puerto Rico had requested the Port Authority come in and help reconstitute their airport in San Juan and essentially help the Coast Guard reopen the port and some of the port infrastructure down in the Port of San Juan. So we all drew straws, right? And I had a, my young son at the time, and I was like, listen, guys, you go. I'll support from back here, right? You guys go downrange. <laughs> But what I ended up doing was every day supporting about 250 Port Authority staff, and they were electricians and carpenters and police officers, right, helping reconstitute and rebuild the airport. Every morning at 3 a.m., I would be on the phone with my guy at Kennedy Airport on commercial flights, and he would be holding the Delta flights and the JetBlue flights saying – all right, what do they need downrange? And we would be ordering shovels and sawzalls and oh, right. yeah. thousands of linear feet of fence, right? And it, that process made me appreciate that geographic separation, sure. right, yeah. was you are reliant upon commercial air traffic, if not the great tails, right, from DOD. Right. And being a, on an EMAC, we didn't have access to... The great tales, right? It was you were limited to commercial flights, so it was the negotiation oh, with yeah. the carriers yeah, of how many pallets can I squeeze on this airframe to get down there because my guys need this stuff. So that's just it was a little takeaway. It was I, I spent most of my career in that sort of twenty five mile radius around the Statue of Liberty, right, which is crazy in and of itself, being New York City. But getting that exposure to the outside in a U.S. territory, sixteen hundred miles away, and the logistical challenges associated with that—it really. Once I took the FEMA job, it I appreciated from the get-go. Sure, how difficult this could be.
0: No, that's great.
1: That's a great anecdote.
0: So, I, I, actually, I think I just put a couple things together. So, where were you on nine eleven? And this was a big thing for your, I think, for where you're at and where you know what you've been doing. Sure, I was in college. I was being an irresponsible
2: college student, sleeping. I remember about 9.15 in the morning, my roommate at the time, his mother incessantly was calling his cell phone, and he was passed out too, right? Not picking up his phone. So I'm bugging him. Randy, your phone's ringing, your phone's ringing, your phone's ringing. Finally picks it. He doesn't pick it up. I pick up the phone. I see it's his mother. And I uh, pick up the phone. I said, hey, what's going on? Turn on your TV. We're under attack. And I said, what? Turn on your TV. The country's under attack. And I, it was shuddering to me. Hold on. I'm, barely, I'm waking up. Did I hear you? Yeah. So I wake my roommate up, and we were in a small dormitory. Sick, only 16 people lived on the floor. And there was a centralized TV. And we knock on everyone. We turn the TV on. We see the trade center. We're knocking on everyone's doors, waking everybody up. They canceled classes that day. Sure. And most of us just sat around watching the TV for hours talking about oh, my uncle works there, or my relative that works there. After that, it was interesting. I remember we had this one course in college. It was essentially a pass-fail course that was as long as you showed up, you passed, right? But it was one of the most defining courses I took every single week. It was once a week. They would bring in some expert or someone with a background in criminal justice. It would have been a county prosecutor or an FBI agent or a municipal cop or a state sure. trooper, right? And there were three questions that everyone wanted to ask, right? How hard is it to get in? How much money do you make? <laughs> right. And what's your day-to-day <laughs> life like? That class after 9-11, was, we only had a couple, cla- a couple of those classes, but every single person that came in had this fundamental shift in their mindset, no matter what discipline they were in, in law enforcement, right. right? To say, this has all changed.
1: My day is not the same as it was before. Yeah, I can only imagine. And obviously for all of us, it was the same way. I mean, of course, I can only imagine. A galvanizing moment for, I was a little bit older than you and it happened, so, a galvanizing moment for those of us wearing uniform. But yeah. And I think that's one of the things that's really hard to communicate to youth these days, right? Because we don't want to dwell on the past. We, we see often attempts to distance ourselves from it. But I think the context of that moment is important for people to understand, to see how quickly, you know, the events can change. And you may not get the indications and warnings you're hoping for, mm-hmm. which I think is important. And hurricanes are a good example of what in the military we would call an indication and warning. hurricane doesn't sneak up on you, you see it coming, yeah. right? So you can plan for that. Yeah. But other, whether it's natural disasters or, <clears throat> excuse me, man-made events, they can surprise you uh, much the way that 9-11 did. And, and, I, and I want to acknowledge, because I know you're a long-time Port Authority guy, the, the loss of life at the Port Authority. In addition, we hear a lot about NYPD and FDNY, but the Port Authority lost, I think, over 80 people uh, yep. during 9-11 to all those brave souls that did what they did for our country. We're, we're eternally thankful. Thank
0: you. And FEMA Region 2 Headquarters is in World Trade Center now. <clears throat> On so World Trade. And you come into work every day. and it, I won't say yeah, it's coming full circle. You guys have a great office. We do. The view's not bad. It's gorgeous. <laughs> no, I appreciate that answer. So Port Authority is the best. That was the recap on that. But you, so you've been a, a believer ever since. So I guess the, the last question I've got, I guess, is almost two years as a regional administrator. What are some of the hardest decisions you've had to make in your position? How have you leveraged your network with the Port Authority and, and your sort of upbringing in that city to make those decisions? So
2: I think the biggest challenge f- for me personally stepping into the role was it- the federal family and each individual silo within the federal family speaks their own language, right? To someone from the outside, the biggest challenge to me was my first six months, I would just have to stop meetings and say, I have no idea what my staff's briefing me. I have no <laughs> idea what you just told me. You just spoke in acronyms, right? Explain this like to a layperson." And it took a while right? But that was a huge challenge on the front end, and I'm trying to be a sponge, right? That's my personality. I want to know every little detail, right, before I make a decision. Not that I'm questioning people, right? But I want to know the impact and the implication of my decision making. And it was really hard to get up to speed on some of these programs that I I just had no background or awareness in, right? But I wanted to, I'm all in, guys. I'll commit the time if you want to brief me out, but You need to brief it in a way that I can understand it. Speaking in acronyms just doesn't cut it. And that's one of my big fears, right, downrange on an actual incident where you have all of these different OFAs and DOD. That's not the time to be learning, right, someone else's language or acronyms. And that's that's a challenge. I think the longer you spend in federal service and you engage with those partners, right, continually, it gets better. But it's tremendously challenging for someone new to that position. And I get a lot of latitude and flexibility from my staff as the regional administrator. They always give me the time, right? They always are willing to sit. But someone coming in to, say, FEMA or pick any other federal agency at a lower level, I don't know that they necessarily get that special care and attention. So it probably takes longer
1: to get up to speed. That's a great point. And I think uh, we can say that we are worst among equals when it comes (laughs) to uh, language and acronyms, you know.
0: We, we have acronyms now that are partly acronyms. So there's acronyms within the acronyms.
2: Wait, do you have a book, though? We have a book of acronyms. Oh, we've got a book. Oh, you oh, have
0: yeah, a book? We've got a book, oh. yeah. We have a joint book. We have, we have an Army pub. book. We have an <laughs> Army
1: book. <pub. laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody's got their acronym book. That's great. So you talked a little bit
0: about the crisis. That's not the time to learn. Have there been a crisis or has there been a crisis where you've had to intercede and say, listen, he does not or she does not understand what you are trying to communicate. What were the most, the biggest hindrances to getting on a unity of effort path that you saw? So I think that's one of FEMA's
2: wheelhouses of what we do all the time, right, is we bring the power of convening together and we connect people and resources to solve complex problems, right? I think I mentioned it yesterday, right? Like I, I really perceive FEMA as the break glass in case of emergency, right? But once we're there, we are really the ones responsible. Everyone typically operates in their silos, right? And there's some cross-divisional sure, collaboration sure, there. Yeah. But when it's time to come together and talk about and brief out, all right, what are our objectives? What are we going to accomplish tomorrow? What's the recap of today? And you go through the traditional incident command system, right? IAPs and all of that. bringing, Fostering the conversation and providing clarity to different federal agencies, state agencies, local agencies. I will tell you, at the local level, one of the most challenging things in some of these small towns in region 2 the local emergency manager is also the fire chief he's also the right. post office the sure. postman and he's probably got another side job somewhere they don't have the appreciation for what the federal family and our language and what we're trying to do like they're just trying to to make do and juggle 800 balls in the air at the same time so a lot of times it's while we bring people together with all different diverse backgrounds and experiences, level setting the playing field so that we're all pointing in the same direction and people aren't off doing their own things or don't really understand, it's imperative that that everyone's pointing in the same direction.
1: Yeah, it's always illuminating for me to walk into one of your regional response coordination centers and see that orchestra that's going on there and watch your team bring people together for that, for convening in one direction. It's, uh, it really is a fabulous Example of the unity of effort that's so important in the federal absolutely. response. Yeah. It almost sounds like the non commissioned officer
0: corps for us. The backbone that you're up you know you have to rely on. Yeah,
1: absolutely. The experts that, that all come from different directions and all they want is guidance and an azimuth.
0: Yeah. So how how do you look at education then in that ecosystem in terms of how do you build different expertise across your team or team of teams? So I will tell you it it's
2: a commitment of FEMA, but it is a struggle to get people so, without going into too much detail, we have something called position task books, right? PTBs, and essentially you need to check on a, on different disasters, check a whole bunch of boxes, right, before you become certified, right? And there's different levels. Short of that, you need disasters in order to create that opportunity, right? There's not a lot of opportunity outside of that. In in what I'll call blue sky days, we focus on certain training curriculum. There's many different available training, right? And from a leadership standpoint, we always push, guys, when you have a blue sky day, take the opportunity, right? Some of this stuff, your portfolio of work can wait. It's you got to maintain your training curriculum. And I will tell you the one thing that we learned, that I've learned in the last year after a couple of different disasters going on around the country, right? There was a perception of the individual assistance side of FEMA's program. So for just to take a step back. We really have public assistance, right, which is fixing public infrastructure, publicly owned infrastructure. And then we have individual assistance, right, where we can help compensate people, reimburse people for damages to their home, right. Mm -hmm. On the individual assistance side, you are catching people on probably the worst day of their life. Sure. And... One of the things that FEMA specializes in is we have disaster survivor assistance teams that actually go out into communities and help people understand the difference between homeowner insurance and small business uh, administration, what FEMA programs are, what all the different forms that they need to fill out. The one thing we realized was we are not adequately staffed for a large-scale incident we are reliant to pull from our cadres at headquarters to parachute people in. And I talked about it with my leadership team, and I said, look, it's great that we have a, a, a fallback plan of, of headquarters folks to come in and, and help us out, but if there's multiple disasters going on in the United States, resources are going to get thin, and, and we're going to be fighting for resources. I don't want to put myself in sure, that position. Sure. Right? And the bread and butter of FEMA is helping people, Right. It's where you are judged in the court of public opinion, right? Public assistance, fixing infrastructure, right? That's all extremely important, but those are long-term, right? Years of of long-term recovery, right? Complex programs. But when someone just lost their house, right? Or they don't have enough money in the bank account to to buy diapers for the child, right? right? The FEMA's individual assistance program immediately can step in, right? And We have programs under individual assistance that critical needs assistance, we can immediately turn on, and it's five or $700 that we can push out to people, right? That aspect of what FEMA does, I alluded to, I perceive as our bread and butter, right? It's where we can make the biggest dent in an individual or community's immediate recovery from a disaster. That requires training people on all of our different programs, right, what they all offer, sure. but also how to talk to a survivor. Yeah, right? yeah, that's got to be tough. It's a stressful situation, People are frustrated, right, because there's complexities in FEMA paperwork and their insurance paperwork, right. and they don't understand. And the last thing they want to do is be filling out paperwork when they just lost their house, right? Sure. So we've put a concerted effort, latter part of 2023 into 2024, to train about 500 of our folks in Region 2 specifically to work disaster survivor assistance teams, disaster recovery centers, right? These sort of pods within communities that people can go and access FEMA programs. Mm-hmm. But that none of that happens without getting people trained and getting people trained the right way, which is our commitment.
1: Well, that's great.
0: Yeah, it sounds like hearing you describe that you're trying to build a culture of compassion. Um, Absolutely. And some resilience even in the community. Um, you literally uh, alluded to it a little bit. Um, so looking at the next couple of years, what are some of the bigger challenges or some of your big goals that you're looking to accomplish? Um, I think over the next couple years,
2: you know, this is from the Biden-Harris administration, right? Climate change, right? All the way through the administrator, Chris, right down to the regions. Trying to make a dent in climate change where we can, right? And that is post-disaster, building back better, building back smarter, right? right. T- to fight the impacts of climate change. Um, for the non-disaster grants, right? Building resiliency, right? Across the country. That's always going to be a priority, as in Puerto Rico alone, I'll mention it, right? There's a very concerted effort to transfer to renewables, right? To get off of fossil fuel generation. But that happens with federal dollars, right? With FEMA dollars post-recovery. But it requires a lot of tender love and care, a lot of attention on, on how do we do that? It's not like you just flip a switch, right? There's a lot of load balancing and, sure, sure. and integration of systems, right? And building resiliency into those systems, that occurs. So, uh, to me, managing climate change across the country uh, is, is certainly a priority. And I also think uh, instilling equity across all of our communities <clears throat> is paramount for FEMA to, to carry out. When a state or a territory is impacted, we look border to border, north to south, and we'll help anyone that needs help. But the reality is, within a given state or a given territory... There are certain communities that are well off, they are affluent, right? They don't really need a ton of assistance, right, at the local, state, or federal level. They got it. There are other communities, high social vulnerability index, right, that just do not have any resources. So focusing preemptively on preparedness programs, right, grants to help those communities build capacity, right, to, the, to even talk about economic vitality, right, bringing in other federal agencies to help those communities build over time uh, and become more resilient is really our laser focus left of boom, right, or left of hurricane. Um, and then in the aftermath of those communities are the ones that need the help the most. Sure, right? Whether it's commodity distribution, right, or temp power missions, it runs the gamut, um, but that's a laser focus of FEMA.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. That's, um, I think that's helpful. And, I, um, and I, Mark, I had a question really that I wanted to ask that's really a planning question, frankly. With that context in mind, if you were just going to speak to somebody about executive level, high end, large organization planning, what's the one thing you would encourage them to think about or do if they're having to scope a large problem and then plan a solution? I know I'm probably hitting you with a vague question there, but
2: it's a great question. I'm going to give you a – probably you've never heard this kind of response before, but I believe in it. All right, great. I don't know. you ever heard of six levels down? The concept of six levels down in an organization? Okay. I've
0: heard of six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon. Yeah, I knew that. That's
2: (laughs) close. So extremely complex problems in large organizations. Generally, they find most of the people that have the best solutions are about six levels down in the organization.
1: Very interesting.
2: Because they're the people that are the experts, right? And they've done it forever. And as a leader, right, like you or I, right, our days are filled with, right, putting out fires all over the place, right, and dipping our toe and solving problems here and there. But we don't get ingrained in the actual underpinnings of what's going on, right, why it works, how it works, why it doesn't work. Very true. And going six levels down in an organization, you tend to find the people that actually know how to solve those problems, and it's something that I have brought into FEMA where we have a complex problem. Sometimes I don't look to my direct subordinates for the solution. I say, what does Joe think? And they right. go, why would you ask Joe? Because
1: Joe's been doing this for yeah, 20 years. Yes. No, that's great. That's super context. And having come from the special operations background, that really is the bread and butter of how we plan. We, we hand it to the NCO professionals. They come up with a plan and the officers help with resources and, and the command and control piece of it. But uh, if you go to a special mission unit, It's not a bunch of majors and lieutenant colonels and colonels in a room coming up with a plan. It's master sergeants and sergeants first class, and they walk in and go, hey, boss, here's how I think we need to do it. So that's
0: brilliant. top down planning, bottom-up refinement, I think is the other way we talk about it. But I just just lost it. That was crazy. Uh, Oh, so you're talking about (laughs) innovation, right? What you're really talking about in terms of six levels down is how do I solve problems, how do I identify problems, because innovation, necessity is the mother of innovation. And so what you're trying to find then is, Where are the real problems stemming from? Am I dealing with symptoms or am I dealing with the root cause? So do you have an example, though, of how you've done that? And then any technology or tools in terms of what can make that organization through process or whatever, I think, maneuver more quickly?
2: Yeah, we have, I'm trying to think of a really good solid example. The one that that comes to mind is we have a, We've systemically had issues with. This is like a nonsensical one, but follow me on it, right? So we have to sign a lot of documents in FEMA, right? That I—that's what I spend most of my doing, right? It's I, I, I can identify with that exactly. So <laughs> the process to do that, right, to get it from the lowest level person that generates it, right, all through all these different approvals, right, to legal concurrence, right, and back down, and finally to me. We had this archaic process of doing that, right? And I first said, when I first stepped in, I said, guys, this is a waste of time. Like, how do we fix this? And my direct reports were trying to, like, reinvent the wheel and create something all brand new. And I went to someone that is a junior staffer. He's five levels down right from me. And she said, we could just make a tweak here and make a tweak there and it'll cut like 40% of time out of this and we can circumvent this whole process. And when you sign it, like it'll be 30 seconds. And I said, how long does it take to make that happen? Goes, oh, I could do it this afternoon.
1: Can you send her to my <laughs> office?
2: <and> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but that's one of those examples. It's minutia, right? But it's mm. a large part of my day and it's hugely impactful to the business process of region two Right, that no one will really know about, but it's that part of the organization by tapping the right individual to influence the chains of a process, and she didn't even have to think about it. She knew it, but just didn't have the voice, right, or the someone listening, right, to, to take that advice and just run with it. No, that's okay. great,
0: and she's probably close to the need, right? Of we course. talk about just you know signing the documents, but people are waiting for those to be signed Absolutely. to drive action. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, that's fantastic. that's actually a really good, a really good example. All right, uh, so. Jets or Giants? So (laughs) Buffalo
2: Bills. (laughs) I'm going to tell you a quick story. Okay. Here we go. So my father was a lifelong Jets fan. God rest his soul. He passed away in 2007. I was indoctrinated, as most kids are, what their father is, their sports team. So I spent most of my life as a miserable Jets fan. (laughs) After his passing, I thought of, look, there's one time in my life where I'm going to get an out to pick another team and go on my own. So I picked the New Orleans Saints. Wow. Uh, I've been a big Saints fan for years. I love Drew Brees. I loved Sean Payton when he was there. Um, this year's been a little disappointing. Sure. I I've always had a soft spot in my heart for the Jets. I thought this was going to be the year, and then four plays in, we're yeah, back to Zach yeah, Wilson again. Yeah.
0: It ruined my fantasy football. Yeah, there. absolutely, absolutely.
2: But I'm I'm I, as much as I like football. I'm a I'm a huge baseball fan. Huge, okay, huge Yankees fan. My entire family are Yankees fans. I'm getting. Shaking that sh- uh, no, head nods from no, Seth no, over no. there. Yeah, no. the I'm, same, new, no? I'm a New
0: Hampshire, guy, Sir, so I'm a Red Sox fan. Uh, but you guys, you guys just got Soto and Verdugo, and we got a one million dollar relief pitcher. So great, we're doing great. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, my my entire family are are we're all yeah. Yankees fans with the exception of one, and we we plan family parties and events around what, what time Your the schedule. Yankees are <laughs> <you're> playing. <laughs> believe it or not.
0: Oh, I believe that Die hard a thousand percent, absolutely. So, sir, we ask all of our guests one last question. What books are you reading? What books would you recommend? They can be fiction, nonfiction, whatever is formative in in your career. Sure.
2: So I would say Biohazard by Ken Albach, right? Former defect of the Soviet Union, ran the Soviet bioweapons program, defected in the early 90s, and talked about how the Soviets took bioweapons, right? Made them more violent, more sustainable. And it's a book that'll scare the ever-living crap out of you. Yeah but it makes you appreciate through the 80s and 90s, right, how bio was such a laser focus of the Soviet Union and what the potential threat is going forward. But it's a great read. For anyone with a CBR background, I'm sure they've already read the book. It's (laughs) a staple. But for those of you that dabble in it, it gives you an unbelievable appreciation uh, for someone that actually ran their Soviet weapons program for the better part of 20 years. I'll,
1: I'll put it on my read list. Absolutely. So will I. Do so you have anything else you wanna add or No, I just want to say thanks again to David for coming and spending some time with us, not just here for the podcast, but also for our listeners out there. We're doing a homeland defense symposium this week and we've had we've got five of the ten regional administrators from FEMA here. We, that's a heavy lift for those folks because they have got significant responsibilities. David, always great to see you spend some time with you and, and thanks for everything you've offered here in the podcast, but also this week during our symposium and our TTX. Thank you so
2: much for having me. I truly appreciate the partnership that that we have developed over my last two years. I couldn't think of a better partner. And thank you for everything that you guys do. I genuinely appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks,
0: Thanks sir.